0: Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Professor Damian Pargas, author of Freedom Seekers, Fugitive Slaves in North America 1800 to 1860. Professor Pargas is a professor of history and culture of North America at Leiden University and executive director of the Roosevelt Institute for American Studies in Middleburg. He is mainly specialized in the history of slavery and its aftermath. His first book, The Quarters in the Fields, Slave Families in the Non-Cotton South, compared and contrasted slave family life in three distinct regions of the American South. His second book, Slavery and Forced Migration in the Antebellum South, examined the experiences of interstate, local, and urban slave migrants from a comparative perspective. Today, we are discussing freedom seekers And Professor Pargas, thank you for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having me, Katrina.
0: So as we begin, can you tell us a little bit about the book?
2: Sure. So like the brief, you know, the brief overview of the book. Um, Basically, this book is about the experiences of, quote unquote, fugitive slaves, uh, who I prefer to call refugees from slavery because I think that's more accurate. Um, But the experiences of fugitive slaves throughout North America, In the Antebellum period. Um, So I think most people know about like the Underground Railroad and the flight of enslaved people from the southern states to the northern states in the 19th century, but not many people know that enslaved people in fact ran like in every direction to escape slavery, so north and south. Um, Some stayed within the south itself and tried to hide out and just pass themselves off as free blacks. Uh, Others fled to the northern Free states, as we know, and still others left the US altogether and made for international destinations like to Canada, Mexico, Bahamas, uh, Haiti, England. Um, And wherever they went, the landscape of freedom that they were forced to navigate as refugees from slavery um, looked different and it required like different strategies to remain free. So in the book, I deliberately take like a continental approach. And what I'm trying to argue is that the future of slave issue wasn't just a North-South conflict in the antebellum period. It really was like a North American issue, a continental issue. I think what makes the book's approach unique um, is the way that it delineates three different spaces of freedom, what I'm calling spaces of freedom throughout North America. And what I mean by that is different types of destinations that enslaved people ran to. So first, like a lot of enslaved people, probably most of them actually, fled to spaces of what I'm calling informal freedom. And these were places within the slaveholding states. So in the South, usually in towns and cities where runaways had no legal claim to freedom or protection, but where they nevertheless tried to escape slavery by passing themselves off as free Blacks, so just sort of disappearing in free Black neighborhoods, adopting false names and false freedom papers, and just trying to pass undetected. That's right inside the South itself. Second, uh, they fled to spaces of what I'm calling semi-formal freedom. And by that, I mean free soil regions like in the northern U.S., where runaways had a contested claim to freedom and protection and where there was this conflict going on between the state and the federal governments about the nature of protection for fugitive slaves, the conditions for potential re-enslavement under federal fugitive slave laws. So it's like they're, they're sort of safe, but also sort of not. There is this, this danger lurking where they could be re-enslaved and sent back to slavery in the South. Um, So that would be the second space, the space of semi-formal freedom. And then third, um, enslaved people fled to spaces of what I'm calling formal freedom, which were free soil regions, but beyond the borders of the U.S. So free soil in places like British Canada and Mexico after the 1830s, where freedom and protection for refugees from slavery was guaranteed, at least on paper, and where free soil was not compromised by any f- fugitive slave laws or extradition laws to the US, um, like it was in the northern US. So, I'm basically delineating these different destinations that enslaved people run to um, in an attempt to reveal the diversity in the experiences of fugitive slaves in the antebellum period and try to suss out why and how they fled to certain places throughout the continent. That's the book in a nutshell.
0: How did you get interested in this topic?
2: Yeah, I think, um, honestly, this this topic has been with me for a long time. So, like, really all going all the way back to my PhD um, research, uh, both of my previous books touched upon runaways from slavery, if only briefly. So, my, like, my first book, uh, Quarters in the Fields, that dealt with the family lives of enslaved people in the antebellum South. And I briefly had to deal with fug- fugitivity, Um, as a response to the prospect of being forcibly separated from loved ones, especially during the like through the domestic slave trade. Um, So I was dealing with runaways already back then for my first book Uh, that, that sort of came out of my PhD. That was a revised version of my dissertation. And then the second book, um, for the second book that I, I, I researched the domestic slave trade itself. So of course I was dealing with runaways there too. And what I kept noticing and throughout you know both of those projects was that I kept noticing that not all enslaved people fled north and that like a lot of runaway slave ads that I was combing through uh, were suggesting that runaways were, were basically going in every direction and that any place was a potential destination for somebody who's trying to escape slavery. Um, especially the ones in this who like stayed in the South. That really surprised me. I kept wondering why anybody would do that. Why would uh, people just why would people flee to certain places and not others? You know, at the time I was researching one of my case studies, I was really looking at Virginia a lot. And Virginia is sort of a unique place because it's in the Upper South, and so it's relatively within reach of. The northern states but it also has it's also within reach of some major urban centers in the south and i kept wondering you know why if why am i why am i why am i coming across enslaved people from the same place like the same counties in virginia and some of them are running to baltimore and some of them are running to pennsylvania and some of them are running to canada it's like what makes somebody choose one destination over another over another And I just wanted to know more about that. So when I finished the last project, the the one about the domestic slave trade, um, I wanted to to continue this this sort of line, uh, this this train of thought on fugitivity. And so I applied for this this grant from uh, a large grant from the the Dutch Scientific Research Council, which is called NVO. And uh, I got it, luckily. And that allowed me to assemble a team of three PhD researchers, each of whom delved into a specific case study of fugitivity in North America. Um, So Viola Müller, who's the author of Escape to the City that just came out with UNC Chapel Hill Press, um, I think you had her on uh, last month or uh, recently in in any case, Um, she was one of the PhD researchers uh, looking at runaway slaves inside the, the South. Um, then I had Oren Kennedy, um, who's just finishing up a book on runaways who fled northbound to the northern U.S. and Canada. So he's looking at that sort of like in a comparative perspective. And um, Thomas Maretz, who also just finished up a book called Conditional Freedom. Um, that's about uh, runaways who fled south to Mexico. Um, so all of them sort of worked on different aspects of this issue. Uh, all credit goes to them. They did, you know, all the cool, uh, all the heavy lifting, uh, you could say, but we worked together as a team to sort of explore, um, fugitivity from a continental perspective.
0: Okay. You mentioned earlier this term refugees from slavery. Why would you delineate using that term?
2: yeah um i i I, so i I i should explain this actually i can't just like throw that out there um i do use this term deliberately to underscore the fact that these people were literally seeking refuge seeking refuge from the most extreme form of unfreedom and oppression that the atlantic world had to throw at you i mean they were these people i wanted to underscore that these people aren't just like migrating you're not they're not your normal migrants um, they're fleeing, just like people flee war, uh, just like people flee oppressive regimes. And so I really wanted to underscore that by calling them refugees. When, when I've used this term at uh, conferences, I, I have often gotten some pushback from scholars who argue that it's Anachronistic to apply it to enslaved people in the nineteenth century. Well, these are these are fugitive slaves; they're not refugees, or these are freedom seekers, but they're not refugees. I've literally had social scientists—so people who work on like refugee migration today—people um, are very, you know, well uh, versed in in sort of the, the international law of uh, of asylum today. Um, I've literally had people like that come come up to me and tell me there's no such thing as a refugee before the twentieth century because there was no League of Nations or UN to define what a refugee was. And I think that's, of course, nonsense. I think refugees have always existed. The need to seek refuge is as old as civilization. And as for the term refugee, even that's not really anachronistic because the British government in Canada and abolitionists in the North, they they labeled these people refugees and they used the word refugees. There's literally a government report about the fugitive slave communities in Canada. And the title of the report is the refugees from slavery in Canada West. Uh, so that's actually where I got that from. So, so I stand by my decision to call them refugees from slavery because I think that's really uh, accurate, you know, really. I, I think I, now, I, do, I do, do understand that you really can't get around the awkwardness of some of the termo- terminology of fugitivity, though. Um, if you say runaway, it sounds like children who left their homes. <laughs> if you say fugitive slave, you make them sound like criminals, um, I don't really like that either. Um, if you say self-emancipated, um, which really gives like agency to the, to the people running, um, still, you make it sound like they had the power to legally liberate themselves, which, of course, they didn't. They, they remained vulnerable to re-enslavement. That's kind of one of the things I look at in the book. Um, so actually, I find refugees from slavery, you know, at least as accurate and in some cases, even more accurate than some of the other labels that we use to define these people.
0: I agree. It's a good term, and it's very applicable in this um, in this situation. Um, now, when you're talking about sources, and I know since it was a team of sources, how did you comprise your set of sources for your um, analysis?
2: Yeah, we, we actually yeah we worked as a team. So we um, each each uh, member of the team was sort of uh, responsible for collecting their own. Source material, but we shared a lot, and um, you know we were pretty generous with each other, with each other's source, sources. But um, basically, I, you know, you can't just if, you, if you're if you're looking at this from a continental perspective, you're really forced into a lot of different types of source material. So, like each, you know, I was dividing the continent basically into three different spaces of freedom, as I said, and each one really required. Um, me and the rest of the team to look in different places. So for the runaways who stayed in the South, um, I started with just like combing through runaway slave ads um, because that's, that's the first place where, where that really strikes you, how, how prevalent that was. If you go through, um, if I, I, had, I do this with my students, I have my students like look through Southern newspapers and start picking out the runaway slave ads. And really it's like, you know, nine out of 10 of them are for local runaways, people who are suspected of hiding out in some town. Um, And so that that's where I started just to like get try to try to get like try to map out how prevalent this was. And I continued with like jail records for cities like Richmond and DC and New Orleans. Some of these cities have jail records Savannah, they have jail records where they had um, just registers of fugitives uh, that who were picked up and imprisoned and were were held there until their their owners came and, and and collected them and so they're they're they often like say where they were caught and how old, how old they are and uh you know wh- who their who their owner is and how long they were held in, in jail until their owner came to get them so i was going through things like that i was going through like county petitions of people um uh who who were settling estates uh, where some of the uh some of the enslaved population that were Belonged to uh, somebody's estate, or like uh, suspected of, of hiding out in a town, or trying to escape sale, or trying to escape being bequeathed to a certain member of the family. Um, so I was going through stuff like that. If when you when you when you're dealing with runaways in the South, you know you're 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 looking at that kind of source material. Those who went north, you know, we started with the the or at least I did. I started with the records of the vigilance committees in places like Philadelphia and New York. Um, you look into uh, fugitive slave court cases, um, you look into slave narratives, most of the slave narratives that we have for the 19th century are precisely uh, those who, who ran north and whose, uh, whose stories were, were either written down or often many of them wrote their own, um, but whose stories were published um, from the north and from Canada. And then those who went abroad, you know, Canada and Mexico are very different types of places. And so they they also had very different types of source material. A lot of the records for Canada are similar to those that you find in the the northern U.S. So we started with like newspapers and narratives um, and government reports. Um, And for Mexico, uh, a lot of like diplomatic correspondence, um, newspapers, again, um, from, from like the Texas borderlands, Um, But diplomatic correspondence was interesting because it was really considered like a diplomatic problem that Mexico was refusing to extradite uh, these people back to the uh, back to the US. So that's sort of where we started. Um, And we just followed, you know, any rabbit hole that we could find. Uh, But they're very different types of sources. And it's kind of difficult when you're studying a theme like this, because the whole purpose um uh of of running away is you know never getting caught and, and never you know people not finding out who you really are or where you're really from i mean there's this constant threat of re-enslavement so you're literally trying to find people who don't want you to find them and so you know sometimes we had to be really creative and think you know sort of think like a fugitive and uh like think where would you be ending up where would you be hiding out and uh and and following these kinds of things
0: now, you mentioned about, you delineated three different types of spaces of freedom. How do we get those spaces of freedom um, from the period of 1777? How do we get those spaces where we're able to provide a place for the um, refugees from slavery to go?
2: Yeah, that's really, I mean, I'm, you're asking like, how do, how do these spaces evolve? How do they develop? Um, honestly, that that's a really interesting and I think o- often overlooked um, part of just North American history in general, there, there or, or just the history of Atlantic slavery in general. Um, the Revolutionary Era, so the you know the, the starting with the American Revolution, um, is a period that really sees a radical shift in the landscape of slavery and freedom. Uh, in the Americas in general, but especially visible in North America. And North America basically bifurcates in this period. And um, that's sort of often uh, overlooked how important and how radical this transformation was. Before the American Revolution, um, there is basically no such thing as free soil. The, The whole term, the concept of free soil does not exist in the Western Hemisphere before the American Revolution. Um, the, the, the the entire notion of free soil at all only dates from 1772, from the Somerset case in England, and even then it only applied to England. Um, and that's right on the eve of the revolution. So in the colonial period, if you're an enslaved person and you want to escape slavery by running away, it's like, where are you going to run? There are no free states. There are no free colonies. Canada has slavery. Mexico has slavery. Literally, from the Arctic down to uh, Patagonia, there is slavery. So there are no colonies that have any like legal, friendly policies to enslaved people. Your options are going to be limited, right? The, your options are practicing maronage. Um, so, so running into the wilderness. And so you have all these communities hiding out in the wilderness. Um, your options are trying to hide out in port towns and pass as free, uh, which is not really that easy in colonial mainland North America, because there really aren't that many free blacks at the time, but in the Caribbean, this is kind of an option in certain places. Um, and your only other option is like getting lucky and fleeing to the enemies of your owners. Um, especially during certain geopolitical conflicts. So for example, Spanish Florida is famous for um, uh, uh, offering protection to runaways from the British colonies um, during the colonial period. Um, That's not because Spanish Florida was somehow against slavery or friendly to slaves. The opposite, they had slavery. This is the Spanish empire. Uh, They just, you know, they're interested in sticking it to the British. And uh, you see something similar happening with certain Native American communities that are like at war with the colonists, and it's like some enslaved people find refuge with them during certain periods. And then um, the most classic case is during the, the American Revolution itself, when the British offer asylum to uh, runaways, uh, who are willing to take up arms for the king's cause, right? So you, you, there, there there is no free soil though. there's no, there's no like place that you can run to. It's not there's not like there's there's not a geography of freedom. There's just like getting lucky and trying to flee to your enemies, uh, the, your master's enemies. With the revolution, all of that changes. Um, you know, when when the revolution breaks out, all of a sudden, parts of the continent, uh, are starting to abolish slavery and they're abolishing slavery on moral grounds. Uh, so, so, you know, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and Vermont, but that starts in 1777 with the Vermont Constitution. Um, and then by 1804, so really in just a short period, you know, by 1804, all of the northern states. Uh, including the, the Northwest Territory, have enacted some kind of abolition of slavery and some kind of commitment to free soil, most of it gradual, but still. Um, and then, even in the southern states at that time, um, during the Revolutionary Era, again, uh, especially in the Upper South, the revolution leads to this relaxation of manumission laws. And that results in the growth of free black communities, even inside the South. Um, and a lot of them end up gravitating to towns and cities. Um, so what, what, uh, what, the, what the revolution does is it, it's sort of, it's the first blow to slavery um, in mainland North America uh, ever. I mean, it's, it's really the first time that it's contested and it's the first time that it's struck against. Um, so you have the emergence of free black populations popping up. Across the continent, especially in the former, uh, the, 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 the 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 former thirteen colonies. So, in the northern uh, states, they're abolishing slavery, and even in the southern states, they're manumitting. Especially in the upper south, um, manumissions are 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 uh, sharply increased, um, even beyond uh, the border. So, so like up in British Canada, um, uh, Ontario sort of follows the lead of the northern uh, U.S. It's not called Ontario yet; it's called uh, it's called Upper Canada. But Upper Canada sort of follows the same trajectory on the heels of the northern states of the U.S. Um, upper, Upper Canada basically abolishes slavery by 1819. The rest of Canada and the rest of the British Empire has abolished by 1834. Mexico, in its own revolution, tries to abolish slavery, and then really definitively does so in 1836. So there just seems to be this continually opening up of free soil and free Black communities, where now, all of a sudden, enslaved people can run to and try and escape slavery, um, and you know, like I said, like these different spaces require different. Are basically they're legally very different. I mean, the, you can run to f- these. There are all these free black communities popping up in the South, where now you can run to uh, and try and get lost in the crowd and pass yourself off as free. Um, there's no legal claim to freedom there, but it's like it's an it's a new option. It's a, it's an option that didn't really exist on any large scale in the colonial period, uh, just because there weren't there weren't very many free you know, uh, there weren't many, very many uh, free blacks in the colonial period. And now all of a sudden there are whole whole neighborhoods of towns and cities where uh, where you can get lost in the crowd and sort of try to escape slavery that way. The Northern states are now committed to some kind of free soil. So you you know, there's this expectation that if you run there, they'll protect you. Um, and then when Canada and, uh, and Mexico sort of follow suit by the 1830s, you know, there's this real notion that if you can just cross the border, then you're, definitely, you're completely free. These are governments that are basically hostile to any kind of extradition treaty uh, with the U.S. So, so it, just seems like, it just seems like the geography is just opening up um, and, and, and transforming in a way that, uh, that, that is offering enslaved people new opportunities to escape slavery that just weren't there at least not on that scale in the colonial period. Right,
0: and it's interesting it's interesting that as your these Environments of free soul are opening up. You're also having that paradoxical nature of slavery, where you're beginning to have second slavery. It's becoming more entrenched.
2: Exactly. At exactly. the same time, right? It's like it's this it's this weird parallel. I mean, I, uh, I think Ada Ferrer uh, uh, hits the nail on the head by calling it this mirror of freedom where uh, at the same time that these places in the Atlantic world are, are abolishing slavery and starting starting to commit themselves to phasing it out. Uh, that's exactly the same period in which uh, uh, certain parts of the Atlantic world, most notably the U.S. South, but also Cuba, Brazil, um, are expanding slavery and sort of filling part of the void uh, left by um, by by. Uh, By some of this abolition. And I think that's really interesting because what it does is on the one hand, it makes it it, on the one hand, slavery is expanding like in the US South and it's, it's expanding at an alarming rate. I mean, it's really just this wildfire that slavery in the colonial period was, but mostly even Southern slavery was really, really sort of limited to the Eastern seaboard. Um, and then, you know, by 1800 is spilling over the, the Appalachians and by the, by the 1810s, by the 1820s, it's really just running across the deep South and as, you know, following cotton and the enormous success of cotton. So at the same time that slavery is, um, expanding, all these free soil territories are popping up all around the South. They're literally, uh, North of the South, South of the South, I mean, uh, in every direction. And so, um, you know, as slavery is expanding and becoming more entrenched, it's really giving people, enslaved people, um, even more, uh, a more of a reason to want to flee. It's like this, it seems like this storm is just never going to end. Um, at, during the revolutionary, in the revolutionary period, if you were an enslaved person in Virginia, you, you would have been forgiven for believing that maybe someday slavery would be, phased out, even in Virginia. I mean, they were actually discussing it in Virginia. Um, They were discussing it in Maryland. It was sort of on the table, you know, even if only briefly. Um, But certainly by the 1820s, by the 1830s, there's just no hope that this is ever going to stop. I mean, it's just growing and growing and growing and growing. And the domestic slave trade is ripping families apart, apart left and right. And, you know, there is no way that this monster is going to end on its own. And so that just sort of gives enslaved people even more incentive to want to flee. Luckily for them, there are all of these new places and, that they can run to and try and, uh, and escape slavery.
0: Right. And they're aided. So they've got, there's the changes that are happening, but you've also got growing on the ground as well, this transportation revolution, which yeah. can aid them as well as they're seeking um, to find freedom yep. during this period, Definitely.
2: yeah, that's that's really important to the whole story. I mean, what we're entering, what we're doing is we're entering sort of the modern age here, and um, you know, in the wake of the American Revolution, um, that the, the industrial revolution is already going on in Britain. It follows uh, to the United States in in uh, the, the first half of the of the uh, of the uh, of the nineteenth century, and um, you know, p- part of the techno- the new technologies that that facilitate the expansion of slavery. Um, Ironically, an expansion, the expansion of the domestic slave trade, um, which is just, you know, destroying communities, just destroying families, um, really making slavery even more traumatic, if that's possible, uh, than it already was. Um, But these same technologies that are facilitating the expansion of slavery throughout the South um, also facilitate escape to a certain extent. Um, and the transportation revolution is a really good example of that. So you have, um, you know, the, the implementation of uh, uh, of riverboats and steamships that are plying the Ohio rivers and the Mississippi rivers to transport uh, uh, enslaved people from the Upper South to the Deep South, right? And um, these same waterways are, are providing a means of escape for people. Uh, from the deep south, I mean the Ohio River is the border between north and south and uh, there are people smuggling themselves on on board of these vessels in an attempt to get to the free states. Um, so you in, in a lot of the runaway slave ads from from the deep south but even you know even the upper south, um, there are all of these warnings uh, to captains of vessels uh, to, to not unknowingly uh, transport uh, uh, runaways uh, in, on board of their vessels. Uh, because uh, apparently people are smuggling themselves on board in an attempt to 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 make it to the free states. Um, you see this, something similar happening even after trains are starting, are, are, are um, after the railroads are laid and after trains are being used uh, in the South. Uh, this really only takes up and takes off in like the 1840s. But um, you see enslaved people running away on the trains. Um, and I had I found an account of a, of an enslaved person who was sold to Georgia from Virginia. And ran all the way back to Virginia by jumping trains, basically, um, including uh, basically laying down on the top of a train uh, throughout most of Virginia, uh, and talking about how he's scared to death in the tunnels and stuff. I mean, it's like it's amazing that, that you know the, the the extent that they were the, the hazards that they were willing to uh, to to take um, to risk in order to to flee. But um, but these are these are basically you know means of escape turning into means of escape i mean it's really difficult to run from georgia all the way uh to uh, northern virginia without getting caught uh, j- just traversing that landscape alone is already difficult let alone uh, you know, when you're being pursued uh, by slave catchers and with dogs um the train is offering you you know tr- cutting that down into a three-day dur- journey um and uh and allowing you to, to get by unnoticed
1: this episode is brought to you by shopify
0: Trying to get out of the South and staying in those informal spaces of freedom, as you call them, were there better places in the South that would be suited than others for those who wanted to remain in the South?
2: Yeah, one of the things that I found was so one of the one of the surprising things that I found during this research is that um, basically any place within the South could be a destination. So even some of the smallest. Uh, county seats um, <clears throat> could be a potential destination for, for a runaway. Um, but if I were running away, let's say, uh, uh, I think well, the, the, the chances of success were, were much greater in large urban areas. And the South really only has a few of these. So um, Baltimore would be the first number one destination, I would say. Uh, Baltimore was d- undoubtedly the, the most popular destination for enslaved people from the upper South. Um, The reason for that is that Baltimore is uh, ironically the city with the largest free Black population in America, North and South. Um, So even though Baltimore is a Southern city, it's a large city, it's a port city, and it has a very large free Black population. Um, It's a majority free black population. So what that means is that the the, the free black population outnumbered the slave population to an extent to such an extent that basically any free black, any any black person you met on the street in antebellum Baltimore, uh, you're going to assume you have to assume that they're free um, because the slave population was even in the minority there. Um, so places like large cities with large free Black populations like Baltimore, these, these tended to be better destinations than the smaller, you know, county seats. Um, Baltimore, these large cities also have more employment. Um, they have entire neighborhoods um, <coughs> where free Black people live. So it's easier to sort of get connected and get lost in the crowd. Um, like I said, they have more employment because they're, they're port towns. So there's, there's always like work at the docks um, and associated industries. Uh, so, so a place like Baltimore, another place like uh, Washington, D.C., so the District of Columbia, Richmond, um, Charleston, New Orleans. Uh, these are the places that, you know, you're really likely to get away with it um, precisely because they have large free black populations. Um, they're port towns where there's plenty of work. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just easier to get by undetected and anonymous in these places. They're just more Uh, support networks and its, you know, larger populations. So if if I were running away within a place of like informal freedom like that, uh, I think it would have made for the bigger, the bigger cities in the South. But, but, you know, having said that, you find, you find runaways basically everywhere. I mean, really even small, small County seats. I think what's important for these people who are running away within the South um, what's important is that the, that, that that not, not just how big, the free black population is in a certain destination or in a certain city, but also just that after the revolution, the whole link between uh, blackness and slavery is sort of disrupted to a certain extent. So you do have even in the small county seats, there are free black populations, they, even if they're just small, you know, a place like Fredericksburg in Virginia that really only has, you know, a few hundred black people, uh, free black people. Um, a, few, a few hundred is, you know, in some cases enough to get by without anybody asking questions, you know, to, what, what, in, in, in towns and in, even in the smallest towns across the South, uh, everybody knows that some of the Black people are going to be free. And if everybody just assumes that some of them are going to be free, then there's less of a chance of anybody, you know, asking questions about this stranger who just arrived in our town. It's like you just sort of assume that, yeah, it's possible they're free.
0: Right. And as I'm sitting here and as you're talking, there's this idea in my mind, and I, Professor uh, Mueller and I, we had spoken with about this as well. Why remain in the South? There's that question of why would you stay in slavery rather than fleeing northward? Why not leave and get out as far as you can? Why would you want to remain?
2: Yeah, I'll be honest with you that really that question exactly as you formulated it that's what um really motivated me to to undertake this project at all. I was just fascinated by this particular group and I thought, you know, why would anybody do that? What what's going through your mind? Why 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 would you risk everything? It's like it's dangerous to 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 flee. Uh, slavery. You know what the consequences are if you get caught? I mean, you, at best, you're sold away um, and, you know, forced to leave everybody uh, that, that you love and care about. Um, at worst, you know, you're, you're beaten and sold away. I mean, there, there is no good outcome for these people if you get caught. And so to undertake that kind of risk and then still stay in the South, it's like, I was just thinking, what's the point? But as I, as I, as I got further into the research, I really started to understand uh, sort of the predicament that these people were in and what they were trying to do. One, one is, um, there are different factors. So there's like, you know, these are individuals, and so they all have different reasons. But, uh, you know, you notice some, some different factors coming up. One is, um, a lot of them have free Black family in towns and cities across the South. And that's important. That's one thing that sort of sets the U.S. apart from some of the other slave societies of the, uh, the Caribbean, for example, is that, that the interconnectedness of, of the enslaved population and the free black population is so thick. I mean, really, they're, they're, they're just so interrelated and um they're, they're, these are not separate groups as they're often made out to be. And that's precisely because uh, manumission in the revolutionary era was, had just happened so haphazardly. It's like some people in sli- you know, freed some of their slaves and didn't uh, manumit others. Uh, some of them, you know, uh, they were manumitted in the, the wills of their, of their owners. Um, uh, but then, you know, the plantation next door that has a lot of the family members of those people uh, didn't. And so what you get is families are sort of, some of them are free and some of them aren't in the antebellum period. And you definitely see this throughout the South and, and, and especially in the upper South. And what that does is it, it means that there are free black people in the cities that you can already run to um, who, you know, will help you and who, you know, know people and can get you connected and can get you those free, this falsified free papers, and they can get you a job. Um, so you have sort of uh, you have a way in, if you will, if you have a foot in the door. And if you go through like even just runaway slave ads um, and even some of the jail registers from some of these places in the South, then that really strikes you um, that, that a lot of them say, you know, Ranaway is presumed to be hiding out in Washington uh, where her father lives. And it's like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> you know that she knows people in, 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 in these cities. So I think that's one of it. One of it is like social contacts connections. So that, that sort of makes it easier to run places where you know somebody rather than go someplace where you don't know anybody in a place, you know, in a state you've never been to um, you know, that's sort of a large step, for, a large leap for a lot of people. Uh, another one, I think, um, this is also important, is uh, honestly that, that uh, it may have just felt very daunting to enslave people to leave the South, knowing that if you leave the South, you can't ever come back. And that's something that, um, you know, a lot of people don't, I think, don't really think about as much as they should. Um, everybody just assumes that if you're an enslaved person living in, you know, let's say Virginia, in the antebellum period, that really your, your best hope in life would be to flee to Pennsylvania or Canada. And that's all you really want. And if only you had the opportunity, that's exactly what you would do. If you did that, that means saying goodbye to your mom, that means saying goodbye to, to your kids in some cases, That means saying goodbye to everything you've ever known and everybody you love. And that's a, that it takes a certain kind of person to do that. This is the equivalent. I I literally put this in the book. It's like the, the equivalent of fleeing from East to West Berlin. It's like, yeah, you can do it. And then you would be free, but you never see your loved ones again. You can't go back. That's a, that's a one way ticket. And so I think that's just daunting to people. If you flee within the South, and you're hiding out in a town relatively close to where you know your your community is. Uh, at least this 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 option still exists, if only, even if just in your mind. But at least in, you're still there, and this option still exists of of remaining connected with family members. And maybe and as I said, a lot of them, a lot of them had family members in town, so it's like they're not they're they're actually sort of uh, they're they're not breaking ties with family and community. They're actually to some extent just just. Transferring to another family member, um, so I think that the the importance of family and community, um, and knowing that you know if you flee north you can never go back, uh, I think that 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 also plays an important role in, in the decision making here.
0: Right and you mentioned about it and it's how they survive once they are there as they are living within the South and you mentioned this very nicely about how they had to portray legal freedom. there was a the physicality of that so that they were not once again found or recognized there, there was a very they had a very intricate scheme of doing that and they were very they creative.
2: They were basically acting. this was theater. Um, I think, to a certain extent, you know, runaways uh, anywhere were, were sort of act, had to act a certain part, right, in, uh, in order to stay safe. But those who stay in the South, this, this is this is their their survival and their um, their protection from re-enslavement is based one hundred percent on a theater that they're, that they're putting on, and what that entails is you have to look free, you have to act free, and you have to answer the questions correctly if anybody asks. And so what they're doing is they're incognito, 24/7. Uh, they change their names. They get false papers. This really, definitely, this is so standard that it's almost doesn't even need to be mentioned. But it's like any source you uncover, um, whether it be runaway slave ads or or the jail registers or just anything, even just slaveholders complaining about uh, fugitivity within the South. Um, there's always this mention of fake papers. This was like there's a, this huge market in fake papers, um, fake freedom papers that fugitives, um, that runaways basically acquire um, when they're running away. This is the equivalent of like a false passport. I mean, it's like if you have fake papers and anybody stops you and you can show them your papers, there is no way that they're <laughs> they're not going to take you up if the papers look legit. And there are plenty of people in the jail registers. Um, who are caught with fake papers. And it says caught with fake papers, meaning apparently they didn't look legit or they didn't, you know, there must have been some mistake in the paper that was obvious to whoever was looking at it. But you had to play this game correctly. I mean, you have to, you, you're adopting a false identity and you have to keep that up for potentially forever. Uh, and I think that's really interesting that you have to sort of play this game, change your name, have uh, fake papers. Um, I literally found a case of, uh, of an enslaved family, an entire family from Stafford County, Virginia, which is like down near Fredericksburg, and uh, from Stafford County, who um, they ran away that they broke they broke into the county courthouse and stole the the, the county seal <laughs> when they ran away, um, so that so as to like notarize their 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 own freedom paper their own fake papers. I mean, that's the extent these people were going to, but there's clearly a, a black market and fake papers and fake passes. So they're, they're they're playing this game and they're living incognito and they're living under false names and with, you know, under a false status. And, and they're also just like looking the part, you know, if you go to, if you're from the countryside and you're going to town and you're going to pass yourself off as a free black, you have to not look like a raggedy person from the countryside. You know, I mean, slave people didn't exactly have the... Uh, especially those who are stuck on the farms and plantations out in the rural countryside, you know, they, they're, they're known for having the worst clothes. I mean, they, they look like peasants. And so if you're going to town where, uh, where, you know, a different fashion um, is sort of expected of you, even from, from the free black population who are the poorest of the poor in the urban, in the urban centers, but even then they're wearing you know suits. And um, what, what people are doing is they're, they're, they're discarding their clothing and they're acquiring new clothes in town. And a lot of the, uh, the documents um, point to that as well. So the runaway slave ads all say, um, you know, took several dresses with her, stole dresses uh, and, and took them with her. Or um, I found, you know, a case of a, a guy who stole a suit and a watch, which is really going all out, um, to really like look like. A city person, you know, look like a sophisticated urban, uh, you know, towns, townsman um, rather than, uh, you know, a, a field hand from from a farm outside of town. So so you have to look the part. But, you know, it's, you sort of feel for them. They're, they're basically co- covering their identity, potentially on a permanent basis.
0: Right, You're severing all ties in some ways with your past and you're becoming another person potentially for the rest of your life. Correct. This is who you are. And that's a part, it's a character, as you said, that you play pretty much close to heart forever. Yeah. You don't have a choice. It's life or death. situation. Yeah.
2: And there are even um, cases. So I, obviously if any authorities stop you, then, you know, you're playing this part, but actually, um, Viola, um, Viola actually shared this with me, but when we were looking at um, some of these cases for Virg- for Richmond, um, you know, we found cases of that that suggest that even within the free Black community, they weren't always coming clear about who they exactly were or where they were from. Like, even you know, even sometimes, um, you know, the, the the communities in which they lived didn't really know exactly what the details were, or like who their their original owner was, or even. You know, whether or not they were runaways. We found this case of like church registers from the African first African Baptist Church in Richmond. And I thought it was really interesting that there's this, you know, they, they kept records of marriages and baptisms and things like that. And they, they, they actually noted down, you know, if it was an enslaved person, they noted down who the owner was. And if it was a free black person, they noted down that they were free. Um, and they're keeping track in their in their records like this. And there are cases of marriages between you know a free black person and an enslaved person. And the the under the free black person it just says you know uh, free colored or whatever it says. And then under the other person it just has like a blank and a question mark, or it says free and a question mark. Like, yeah, they say they're free. We're taking them at you know we're taking that at face value, but.
1: I don't think they're really free, you know, like
2: they're clearly a runaway. Um, so I think, you know, they're to a certain extent, they're even playing this game within the free black community. This, it's just the, you know, the, the the anxiety they must have felt about potential recapture just must have must have dominated their, their existence.
0: Right. But for those in the South, so you have those who are willing to. Make that choice, and remain there. But what about the ones who are going north into those, into the northern communities? Why would you choose to go north over the Mason-Dixon line rather than staying in the south? What may, what would make an enslaved person do that?
2: Yeah. So this is another riddle, and because you know you get people that, like I said from the same communities literally from the same neighborhoods, basically, and some of them will go to Baltimore and others will go to Pennsylvania. And so the, the question is, what makes one choose one destination over another? And, you know, remember, these are individuals, so they all have sort of their own reasons. But I think um, some of the factors that come out in the northbound runaways, I think, are, again, social context, that's important, connections. So a lot of these people know somebody or heard about somebody who fled north before them. And that's important because just the story... Uh, remember these people are not able to do research on their destinations before they go. They just, it's all hearsay. And so if they know that, um, you know, their cousin fled to Pennsylvania and was never heard from again, and all the people on the, you know, in the, in the neighborhood say, Oh yeah, he went to Pennsylvania. And that's like, then that's the word that's going to stick in your head, Pennsylvania. And so even if you just go through like the vigilance committee records who wrote down like what the motivations were of all these people that they are, um, that they are receiving, um, they're saying things like that, like heard about Pennsylvania, wanted to go. Um, a, neighbor, a neighbor apparently fled to Pennsylvania, and wanted to go, or family members had fled to, uh, north. And, and so they, they, they just naturally pointed their compass in that direction. Um, but another factor that um, I, I think you just cannot get around uh, uh, is that these people had a different, like, different expectations of freedom, basically. Those who are staying in the South they're escaping slavery, they're escaping their owners, they're escaping abuse, um, they're not willing to sever ties with family, um, and for them, just living like a free Black in the South is good enough. And for those who are going North, it's different. They're, they're expecting legal, some kind of like legal status. They're expecting, uh, They're expecting freedom in the way that it's formulated in the revolution, in revolutionary ideals. Um, they believe in, in, in freedom. Uh, so there is some kind of ideological motivation there. And you do see this, again, with, in the records of the, the Vigilance Committees. You also see it in the slave narratives where you would expect it. Um, but even in just the, the records, the minutes of the Vigilance Committees, when, when they're asking them why they, why they wanted to flee, they say, they say things like, um, felt that they should have a right to, to freedom or uh, felt that they're as free as any man or felt that they should have a right to the fruits of their own labor. And so there, there is this notion of rights and of deserving freedom um, that, uh, that I think you, you lack a little bit. You, maybe you don't lack it for those who stay in the South, but it's stronger for those who run North because they're taking greater risks to run North. Um, and like I said, they, they are severing ties with, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're crossing a door you know, of no return. Um, so they're taking greater risks and uh, they're going to a place that, that, that is un, completely unknown to them. And, um, and I think what motivates somebody to take that leap is, is this, you know, this notion that, that it's this, that, 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 that it's justice, you know, that there's a a sense of moral justice uh, involved in it.
0: Right. And it's interesting, you know, for those who are willing to take that risk, as you say, there's this idea of the North as this land of liberty and freedom. And I made it, I'm across the Mason-Dixon line, I am free. I'm in the north. I'm free. However, there were risks with that. And the fugitive slave laws did not help that. But there were risks. There were lots of risks that they faced even without being in the south.
2: Absolutely. I mean, they 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 felt I mean there there are a lot of risks that that are involved in in fleeing to the north because of the fugitive slave laws. So really that's why I was When I originally conceived of this project, I was thinking of the North as a place of formal freedom. And my original um, conceptualization of the geography of of freedom was that you had places of informal freedom in the South, which I thought was really interesting. And then everywhere else, like the northern U.S., Canada, Mexico, all of that falls under free soil. Um, But really, the the northern U.S. just, just occupies this gray zone where uh, the future of slave laws really screw everything up. So it's like the Northern states clearly tried to conceive of themselves in the post-revolutionary era. Um, and there have been some scholars who, who argue that this is overstated, that the North was still committed to slavery in some way. But really, if you look, if you look at what they're trying to do, um, clearly, clearly they're trying to transition out of slavery altogether. And uh, the federal future of slave laws that allow Southern slaveholders to come and collect, to reclaim and re-enslave um, runaways um, screws up their whole notion of free soil, and so that you know that really it, it presents legal problems because if the if the northern states are trying to abolish slavery, but southern slaveholders can still but a runaway is still a slave even when they're on free soil, then you still have slavery, right? I mean, if it, like if a runaway from Virginia in Pennsylvania is still a slave in Pennsylvania. Then Pennsylvania has slavery, and that's basically the predicament that that northern communities. That's what fear, frustrates northern communities uh, so much that um, this becomes a real problem between north and south. Partly because uh, northerners feel that uh, fugitive slave laws are an encroachment on their own state sovereignty in the north. Uh, in other words, their 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 states' rights to abolish slavery, which which are continue, continually being screwed up. So for runaways in the north, they're in this weird position where. Um, it just depends on the judge. It depends on the interpretation of the federal fugitive slave laws. But there is a possibility that you can get captured, and plenty do, and get sent back to the South, back to slavery in the South. I think the chances are that they're relatively safe in the North. So I think most runaways, you know, I think Eric Foner's um, uh, book, Gateway to Freeman, he, 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 um, I think he puts the estimates at something like 100,000 people are thought to have fled North in the antebellum period. And clearly, most of those got away with it. I mean, there are not a hundred thousand people being sent back to the south, um, but um, but there was always this chance. You know, there's always this haunting possibility that you could get captured, and if the if the judge is sympathetic to a certain interpretation of the fugitive slave laws, then you know your 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 fate is sealed. So um, what? You know, what helps, I think, in in the North is that it's such a contested issue and it infuriates a lot of northern communities so much that there's a lot of civil disobedience to complying with the future, uh, with the federal fugitive slave laws. And that, of course, works in the favor of the refugees from slavery. Um, If they're there and there and um, slave catchers arrive um, and and the north, you know, the, the, the community in which these people live are not going to have it you know they, they form like a mob or a, a, a posse to, to chase the slaveholders away uh, the slave catchers away then it's like then you're safe but that's not because the law was on your side that's just because you know the, the community mobilized and prevented them from catching you um so there's there's relative safe, safety in the north but there's never like full safety it's just a lot of it is just really contested
0: right and were they able to survive economically in the North?
2: Very difficult. So nowhere, um, there is no promised land in North America. I think that's one clear conclusion of this research. Is like nobody's doing well. Um, but uh, wherever they go, they're, they're sort of relegated to the bottom rung of um, of the socioeconomic uh, ladder. But... Um, you know they're, 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 uh, most of them are able to get by uh, in the north i mean like, you can't really get around that they they're sort of connected into jobs um, uh, through f- free black communities um, to help them um, and they're basically doing the same kind the same kind of work that, that's being done in like these these cities in the south that i was talking about like you know ports um, domestic domestic roles for especially for women um, these kinds of things that the, the, the sort of the bottom low paid, um, very vulnerable uh, uh, sectors of uh, of northern urban economies, that's wh- that's where you're going to find these people. Um, so they are able to get by. Uh, but no, they're not you know, they don't just like uh, run north and then uh, do so well that they buy a farm and you know live happily ever after. You know, most of them are, are living, you can buy a living at best. So no, but they're slavery,
0: but. True. Very better than slavery. And they there are the risks of recapture. There is that risk. But there's also violence that's going on in the north. There's violence that's happening, especially within um, against some of the African American communities during this period as well. And so they're walking into that environment as well.
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I don't want to paint the picture of northern communities as all being abolitionists. They were absolutely not. I think most northerners were at best indifferent um, to the plight of, uh, of refugees from slavery. Um, a lot of there is a lot of violence going on, especially in urban areas, and that you even get race riots in this, in this period where, you know, people um, rise up and, you know, there's just mob violence uh, against uh, black people. Um, and so, no, none, none of these places are, are peaceful. Let's say, you know, there, there aren't that many, like, peaceful urban areas um, for, um, you know, for, for just for free African-Americans in general um, in this period, uh, let alone th- those who are, you know, coming with nothing and, and have fled uh, to get there. So, no, there, there's, there is violence, um, there is persecution, um, and then there's this ever-looming threat of of being captured and, and re-enslaved. So the North really isn't, you know, the, the sort of promised land that it's often made out to be. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a better destination, let's say, and it's a, legally it's a, a little bit safer destination than any destination in the South, that's for sure. But there's a reason that, you know, after 1850, when uh, the, Fug- the, 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 the fugitive slave law is amended and, and sort of made more severe, um, and when the North really starts to get into this, this mode of, you know, there's real... Tension and and and, sectional uh, tension going on. Um, There's a reason that Canada all of a sudden becomes more popular um, to to fugitives living in the north. That moves us.
0: Great segue that moves us into those formal spaces of freedom of Mexico and Canada. And you're right that 1850 Fugitive Slave Law kind of sparked because even for those refugees of slavery who considered themselves some of them safe in the north it was time to move further for some of them who were willing to yeah,
2: do that that's right actually i made I'm, i tried to make this distinction um in the book as well and i think um it was something that surprised me that i was just thinking that okay so i i thought i'm, I'm studying you know runaways who are Running from the south to various other destinations in North America, and so when I was conceiving of like Canada, let's say that's the, you know the most certainly the most written about and the most popular international destination, um, I was thinking people who are running from the south all the way to Canada. In other words, we are just like going nonstop. They're 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 not stopping in the north anymore. They're just like on their way north, come hell or high water. And what, I've, what I found was that a lot of them sort of use the North as a stopping point, and they're living in the North for a while, and then 1850 comes along, and that's, they're like, that's it, we're going again. And like, this place is getting too, you know, it's getting too hot here. Um, and uh, some of them are, are just pick up stakes and, and move again to the North, but they'd already been living in the Northern U.S. Um, so some of them have been living in the Northern U.S. for like seven or ten years, you know, that well-established, you know, already had families um, in the North and were basically used to living in the North. Um, and then in the 18, after 1850, they just like pick up the whole family and move across the border to Canada, uh, where they're really safe. And it's true in Canada, they really were, um, much, you know, they really were safe. There's no fugitive slave law that's gonna, um, that's gonna, uh, that can reach them up there.
0: Now, for those, of our, for those who were willing to cross the border, go into Canada, go down to Mexico, um, through your research, which one did you find as a more hospitable environment?
2: Yeah, definitely Canada. Um, so definitely British Canada, especially Upper Canada. That's where most of them were, were settling. So, t- so uh, today that's, that's Ontario. And um, at least that's hospitable in one sense of the word, in the sense that they're safe and that the British government is actually relatively uh, generous to them. They're, 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 first of all, their status is uh, much better. So their status is, you know, they're full British subjects of the crown, which means that they have, you know, the equivalent of citizenship. Um, they, there is no legal segregation in Canada. So they're officially their kids can go to school with white kids which is a really contested issue in the northern U.S. at that time, <coughs> they are basically, you know, legally on par with everybody else. And the British government grants them, um, in certain cases, uh, grants them land, so gives them land grants to, to settle their own communities. Um, so a lot of these grants are given to entire communities, like, like a whole church community or something. And so you do, you, do, you know, in general, these people are um, helped in a way that they are not in the northern U.S. and definitely in a way that they are not in Mexico. Um, so the, in that sense, I would say British Canada is a very hospitable place for uh, for runaways from slavery. Um, I would say that the flip side of that coin is British Canada was extremely racist. So it's like Uh, On the one hand, in a material sense, they're being helped, and in a legal sense, they're safe, and they really are safe. Um, But, uh, you know, white Canadians want absolutely nothing to do with these people. And so there's a reason that they're getting land grants. It's because nobody wants them in their town. And there's even protests up in Canada. You don't get the violence you get. You don't get really, like, these major race riots that you get in uh, New York and in Cincinnati and some of these other places. But uh, you do get uh, real hostility um, by white um, Canadians um, who don't want uh, black people to go to school with their kids, for example. And so, you know, the school issue becomes really like this big issue that blows up um, and uh, sort of convinces a lot of runaways to uh, either keep their kids home or to start their own schools.
0: Schools. And yeah, that's very in carry yeah, exactly. Jack Harry and Henry Bia, the educators they back exactly. and forth
2: and they are exactly sort of the the pioneers of these regions where they're sort of trying to um they're trying to recruit um people to to continue up north where they're fully free um, and they're trying to to really push this this uh this notion of self-reliance you know like you can come up here you can be free they' they're, the, the government is is you know sympathetic to our needs don't expect any handouts. We have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But at least here we have the means to do so. That's basically how Canada is being sold. Nobody's nobody's selling Canada as a place where everybody's friendly, because that's just not true. Um, it's just, but it is a place where they're left alone in general. Um, Mexico, on the other hand, is much more dangerous. And in Mexico, you know, Mexico also refuses to sign an extradition treaty with the U.S. Um, uh, welcomes runaways across the border, basically. Um, as a sort of geopolitical, especially in the in the wake of the Mexican War, when you know a large deal of Mexico is just annexed by the U.S., um, so Mexico is hostile to to U.S. expansion and is definitely suspicious of uh, slaveholding expansion. Um, the whole Texan Revolution is basically about that. And so, for the, the Mexican government, to their credit, um, are putting uh, laws on the books that 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 are meant to protect runaways within the borderlands but their status in Mexico was a little bit you know more more confusing I mean it, they, they weren't just like granted you know citizenship or citizenship rights or anything like that it was very difficult for them to acquire legal status so um, you know they had to get basically the the equivalent of a uh, like uh, nowadays we would call it like a visa I mean, basically documents to to that allowed their residency in Mexico this is very difficult to get because in order to get that, you had to prove uh, that you were uh, a resident from uh, your previous country and enslaved people were not even considered people in their previous country. Right. So they were not getting the documents they needed to even apply for a residency status in Mexico. And it's like, it was like that, right. Where they're basically in this legal limbo. They're not being sent back because Mexico refuses to send them back. But, uh, but they're also not being granted like full legal citizenship. They're basically just being, they're, they're tolerated. They're, they're tolerated and, and, Right. um you know nobody wants to extradite them uh but uh but they're also left to their own devices to a certain extent um they're vulnerable in mexico in the Mexican borderlands in a way that they're not in the Canadian borderlands because in the Mexican borderlands they're relatively open and porous, and you have slaveholders, especially from Texas, um just coming right across, just boldly coming right across and raiding. Border communities um, looking for runaways. Um, it's totally illegal. It's literally an international invasion, um, but they did it, and it happens. And the just the Mexico's northern border was just so poorly uh, defended, um, There didn't have enough troops up there, and so you know th- these kinds of things happen. So even in free soil territory, even in a, in a country that refuses to extradite you you do get kidnapping in the borderlands um, so that makes them vulnerable and then you have you know everything else that goes with being a refugee in a a foreign place they didn't know anybody they had no connections usually in mexico or very few Um, they often didn't uh, speak spanish Uh, they had to learn and you see that the more successful the stories of the more successful people who flee to mexico are the ones who who connect into local society relatively quickly so those who learn spanish those who uh, end up marrying uh, a Mexican and so sort of plugging themselves into a family network. Those are the ones that, that there are success stories about. But you have plenty of them who are just, you know, uh, desperately poor, you know, uh, friendless, uh, just sort of wandering around uh, these towns um, and, you know, in this legal limbo status um, that I guess is better than slavery, but it's not, um, you know, they're not, they're, not, they're not supported in the way that they were uh, in Mexico. They're just sort of tolerated there. I'm sorry, in Canada.
0: Wow. It's kind of interesting when you think about it, you know. But for those who are escaping slavery, you have to think about to become that refugee, especially if you're like on the U.S. southern border, getting all the way to Canada, there's a lot of risk involved in that. So the easiest route would be to go to Mexico. It would be easier for you to get there. Versus trying to get across the Max and dixie line, then you've got to get across the border. Uh,
2: I think a lot of it was just like flight of circumstance. I mean, uh, uh, important uh, factors that motivated people to flee to certain destinations were, you know, how easy is it, is it to get there? And, um, and for those who flee south across the border, a lot of them are coming from Texas. I would say most of them are coming from Texas and um, those who are not coming from Texas are coming from like Louisiana and other places in the really deep, deep South. Um, some of the Gulf ports, so they you know, some of them are fleeing by vessels so by over water, um, just sort of across the Gulf into Mexican territory. And those who are fleeing over land are fleeing through, through Texas. Right. And so, you know, it's just, Canada's thousands of miles away. Even the Northern border is thousands of miles away. And so Mexico's right there. Uh, so a lot of that is, uh, you know, just, just, just seems like the most obvious option. Um, those, there, there are stories of people who flee that far to free soil, definitely, but those are the ones who make the best use of the transportation revolution that you were talking about, where, you know, people from New Orleans uh, hop on a vessel, New Orleans, the most important port town of the South, um, hop on a vessel that's bound for the north and somehow manage to stay smuggled all the way until they reach a northern port. Um, those are the ones who make it up north. But um, if you're going by land or something, then the best option is to, uh, to make for uh, the Mexican border, which is only a few hundred miles.
0: Right. And that just seems more feasible and practical. And practical is what you need it to do in order to survive in this That's instant. Right.
2: Some ingenuity and some creativity.
0: Yes, I definitely agree with that one. So, Professor Pargas, what would you want readers to take away from this book?
2: Yeah, well mainly um mainly I hope that that um first of all that they'll gain a, a greater appreciation for the diversity um in fugitivity in uh, in Antebellum, North America, as I said. Um but also I really hope that readers will appreciate just enslaved people's commitment and ingenuity to escape slavery. Um I think the the ways they risked their lives uh to hide out Anywhere in North America, literally anywhere that was feasible, anywhere that would have them, uh, I think is a testament to resilience uh, in the face of of, of adversity.
0: And that it is. Professor Pargas, thank you so much for joining me today. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of Freedom Seekers to learn more about these enslaved men and women who were willing to risk everything to find a life outside of slavery i promise you if you read the book it is worth it so please go out and pick up a copy thank you again professor progress for joining me today
2: thank you the pleasure was all mine